Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week's show is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. Even with a balanced diet, it's difficult to cover all your nutritional bases. This is where Athletic Greens will help. Their daily drink is nutritional insurance for your body that's delivered straight to your door. I'm going to try a little sound effect here because I'm actually drinking some Athletic Greens right now. I feel like this year has been so trying in so many different ways that it's comforting to supplement my nutrition with Athletic Greens. It's a complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. It's filled with things like zinc for muscle recovery, magnesium for nervous system recovery and function, as well as better sleep, as well as grapeseed extract and high-dose vitamin C for faster collagen formation, which can contribute also to faster recovery and rebuilding of that muscle tissue that can get broken down in your efforts out there on the bike. Since I get Athletic Green shipped to me every month, I've got this great routine where I have a cup of tea in the morning, and then I'll quickly mix up a batch of Athletic Greens and drink that just to make sure I'm starting off my day fully charged. And then on those days when I've got a big gravel bike effort, I'll typically have another glass of Athletic Greens in the afternoon along with a recovery drink and a good meal just to get my body back in tip-top shape. So whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address gut health, now's the perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to claim a special offer for my listeners. You're going to receive a free D3K2 wellness bundle with your first purchase. That's up to a one-year supply of vitamin D added when you try Athletic Greens for the first time. So remember, visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to claim this special offer. This week on the podcast, we're welcoming Aaron Kerson from PNW Components. After spending time at Specialized Bicycles and Marin Bikes, Aaron and his wife Emily decided there was an opportunity to create a components company, originally focused on the mountain bike market, but over the last few years, they've started to develop products specifically for the gravel cyclist. I was excited to learn more about Aaron's background as a cyclist and really keen to dig into the mountain bike influence of the products that they're pushing forward on the gravel side. So with all that said, let's dive right into my interview with Aaron. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I always like to give the listener a little bit of an idea about your riding background because we all come to drop bar, gravel bike riding from a different perspective. So how'd you get started riding and, you know, what, what are your favorite disciplines? Yeah, you know, I, uh, got started actually through, uh, BMX racing when I was, gosh, like, I guess I started when I was about eight, uh, at the, uh, the Napa Valley BMX track, which is, uh, well, the original ones is no longer there, but, um, yeah, I was into that. I just had some buddies that got into it. I was, I was awful. I was a, a chubby, chubby kid who was, you know, liked the idea of biking, but man, I had such bad asthma. I just couldn't really make it work very well, but just kind of stuck with it. And then eventually a, a friend's brother left their 24 inch wheeled, uh, specialized rock hopper at my house just for, I don't know, he forgot it and never came and picked it up for, for a few months. And I started riding that around and that's when things totally changed, like having the ability to have gears, uh, get up and over hills. And it just, I, I think it just opened this whole window of like freedom um, to be able to get out and kind of do your own thing. And 
that's really what hooked me. And so, yeah, I got, I got started on the mountain bike side of things. And then eventually that led into uh, downhill racing and, um, gosh, then, then I got into dual slalom, which was a combination of BMX and mountain and, you know, the downhill side of things. So that was really my sweet spot for a long time. So, um, yeah, kind of, you know, it was racing the, what was called the Norba circuit at the time. So I was traveling around, um, doing downhill and, and slalom racing, um, got some sponsorships, worked my way up to like, you know, semi-pro level again, never a super strong athlete, but I had the skills so I could kind of cobble together a run, uh, here and there. So yeah, I got started in that way. And then, uh, now I'm doing more just trail and gravel. So it's, uh, it's been kind of the, the full progression, um, over the years, but yeah, I got quite a, quite a bit of biking in under my belt these days. Nice. I love those stories. It's similar to yeah. my own starting off in BMX. And although I will say that being in the Napa area, you've got great dirt. I know the BMX scene was big back in the day up there. And then the mountain biking trails are surprisingly good in Napa. So I, so I guess, yeah, I completely, uh, kind of omitted that one, but so that was, that was really big. So we had the Napa Valley world cup, um, a UCI, well, uh, yeah, eventually was the UCI Grundig world cup, um, was actually in Napa. So that was when I was like, gosh, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, we had it a few years in a row and that completely, you know, I, I like my dad and I volunteered as course marshals and, you know, it was like watching Tinker Juarez race back in the day. And that yeah. was cool to see. So that kind of hooked me. And, and at the time that was the only type of mountain bike racing really that there was, was cross country. So that's technically how I got started as I, I did that. And I remember I, 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 the last year it was in Napa, um, I signed up to race <laughs> and first lap in like just again, chubby kid with asthma. Like I just way overexerted myself. I threw up and then my body cramped up. And so on the, they had this big downhill where everyone would watch and I just fully cramped like arms, legs, everything cramped. I fell and tumbled down the hill and I, I a buddy of mine was filming it back then. So I have, I have some footage of that I should pull out someday, but, um, yeah, the riding's good, man. It's super rocky, really steep, ton of punchy climbs. It gets really sandy and dusty in the summer. Um, and then that led me to riding in Tahoe. That's where I would always race the downhill stuff. And so, I mean, it's just like sand. Um, so that was a really, really, just kind of as a side note, like now living in, in the Seattle area, completely opposite terrain. And it took me a good season up here to kind of recalibrate on like, what it's like actually having grip in corners. <laughs> like I had to, I'd come into a corner and I'm like, Whoa, okay. That was way too slow. Like I think I can carry more speed. And now when I go back to Tahoe, I'm just totally a fish out of water. So it's, um, it's been an interesting transition <laughs> going back and forth. That's what's always fascinated me about riding in different places, whether it's mountain road or gravel is just the different terrain that gets put in front of you and the different techniques required to successfully navigate it. Oh, it's totally different, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, you know, with the, the more loose stuff, I mean, you're, you're, there's a lot more, I describe it as, you know, kind of pinching the seat just to keep the, keep some semblance of normality, you know, when you're on the bike just to like, okay, well, if, as long as I'm pinching the seat, like if, even if the bike is all over the place, at least this is my like center anchor point for the bike and the front end can kind of wobble around or whatever. And then up here, it's completely opposite. It's just really grippy, um, with the exception of wet roots, like that obviously is squirrely, but just when the dirt's good and, and moist, I mean, it's so tacky. So it's a, it's a very different style. Um, yeah. And then on the gravel side too, it's like, for me at least, I, I really 
love the terrain that we have up here because you can cover a lot of ground. Your lungs are clear. You don't have to worry about dust, especially if you're in a group, um, which is really, really nice. So it's, um, again, yeah, just, just a different experience than I, I grew up with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for the listener, you know, I often get asked about gravel bike setup or just riding techniques, and it's so dependent on where you are. And I always like to describe it as you're sort of putting skills in the bank. Like the first time you ride through sand, you're not going to know what the hell to do, but mm-hmm. you will the second time and you'll eventually get the technique the more you're on it. And the, the best, most well-rounded riders have just put all these experiences in the bank so that when they come across a rock garden or sand or some other type of situation like mud, they just kind of know how the bike's going to feel underneath them and they can adapt from their home riding environment to this, you know, the positioning and the skills required to navigate whatever's in front of them. I totally agree, man. Absolutely agree. Yeah. And, and with bike setup too, it's, I'm sure we'll get to it, but yeah, it's kind of cool seeing how folks, uh, cause gravels, you know, it's, it's just, it's, converging both sides right that's just people coming from road into the gravel scene and people coming from mountain more towards road um it's kind of this this really cool intersection so then seeing people's bikes set up between the, uh, you know it's very clear typically like where what side of the spectrum they're coming from into gravel um which is really exciting to see too yeah so. absolutely and i'm super keen to get your perspective um but i'd love to hear about kind of your journey so you you know you were racing mountain bikes you were in love with bikes and then you found your way into the bike industry. Do you want to talk about how that experience eventually led you to founding PNW? Absolutely, man. So yeah, I was, uh, working in shops, um, gosh, through high school and then through college, you know, on summer breaks. Um, I, I really got lucky. I mean, I quite honestly, just one of my, my best friends and riding buddies, uh, his, his dad owned a bike shop. And so that was an easy in, um, but I had worked at a few shops before that, but that was really like where I was able to take on more responsibility. And, you know, he trusted me to, you know, I I mainly was doing mechanic work, um, and a little bit of sales, but, um, that was really cool. So I was, you know, kind of at a point in life where I was starting to think about, well, what did I want to do, you know, post-college? Um, and I got to speak with a lot of the sales reps, uh, you know, we carried Trek and Specialized were our two bike brands as well as Santa Cruz. So it was a really cool shop. So I got to chat with them and kind of understand more about the industry. And of course, the reality of what it's really like was absolutely different than these little kind of tidbits I was getting through a sales rep. Right. Uh, because, you know, I'm like translating things that they're saying into my own little like idealistic um, mindset of <laughs> what it's like, you know, it just seemed like this magical thing. So, um yeah. Anyway, so, you know, worked in shops. So yeah, I did that for a total of about 10 years. Um, and mainly was doing it to pay for, you know, getting employee discounts on, on bike stuff, um, and paying for my racing. I mean, that really was it. You know, I obviously was living at home and didn't have those type of expenses quite yet. So it was, it was all about racing, but, um, yeah. So once I got into college, I went to a school called Sierra Nevada college that's based in Tahoe. Um, and the big draw there was, um, well, you know, you're in Tahoe, which is fantastic. And then also they had a, um, uh, well, they had interest in starting a bicycle race team. Um, so I came in and was able to start it and, you know, was the president of the, of the race team. And it really was mainly me <laughs> on the team, but they were able to, to fund my racing and, and, you know, help promote the school through, through that way. Um, continue doing that. But then I, at the same time, I also really was starting to see that like, okay, probably, you know, well, 
the reality of me becoming like a professional cyclist, duh, definitely not happening. And then uh, I think it's time I focus more on my studies and try to figure out how to get a job. So I, I really, for whatever reason, man, it just the timing, like I guess my junior year of college, it just totally clicked. I was like, God, I love studying um, as boring as this, as this may sound, I love studying business. So I really got into all my classes and was able to uh, land an internship with the Angel Investment Group um, called the Sierra Angels. So angel investing being, you know, uh, investment in, in early stage companies. Um, <clears throat> learned a lot about that side of things and was able to actually land a job out, out of college at a startup there. So did that. This is unrelated to bikes, but what the reason I'm bringing it up is basically, um, you know, I was employee number six at the startup. Our product was a uh, residential scale windmill or wind turbines. So we could actually produce energy for your home. Really cool product. But, you know, I was, unfortunately, uh, we had some infighting with our board. So our two of our investors got into a pissing match with each other. They both pulled their money out at the same time and the company went bankrupt. Um, so I, you know, kind of was out on my own and trying to figure out what to do. And just through kind of networking of just buddies I had in the bike industry or, or just riding buddies, um, I was able to get my resume to specialized and it just happened to be, uh, my friend Devin make, you know, used to make bike videos and he had done work for this one guy at specialized. And it just happened to be that that person out of the 500 employees there was the one hiring for this role. So just total random luck of like high school friend knew this person. Um, and so I was able to get an interview and went through the process and was able to land a job as a product developer at specialized. So it was kind of this weird transition of, of things, but, um, that was my first intro into like truly into, you know, the, the development side of, of the bike industry. So that was very cool. That must've felt like a dream job, a dream opportunity for you. I remember, you know, it was funny, uh, my, my manager Deacon at the time, well, the guy, you know, who, who, who was ultimately making the decision. Um, I think he had thought he communicated that I got the job, but I still was under the impression I was waiting to hear back. So I finally, I, I hit him up. I was just like, Hey man, I'm sorry, just for my own sanity, you know, like, what's the deal? He's like, Oh, Oh yeah, dude, no, you're totally in. Yeah, no, you can start, you know, in two weeks. And so <laughs> I remember I was in the car and I, I just, I, I like just yelled. I was so, I was so, so happy. You know, that, that was just like a, a dream come true to, to be developing these bikes that I grew up riding and selling at the bike shop. I mean, it was really incredible, um, feeling. So yeah, jumped in there and man, they threw me right into the fire. It was, uh, within three weeks of being there, I was on a plane going to Taiwan to go, um, it just happened that that part, that time of year was right when we were finalizing spec decisions for bikes, um, you know, coming the, the following model year. And that was absolutely eye opening. It was, you know, touring factories, you're on the ground floor, understanding how the bikes are assembled. And then you're, you're meeting with the sub suppliers who make all the little components that go on the bikes. And then you're, you know, I, I was more witnessing at the time, but, you know, watching my, my team negotiate pricing with gosh, over a hundred vendors, you know, it was just a total grind. I imagine um, what must've been eye opening was just how far in advance these decisions are being made. You kind of think about it on the consumer side of things that, Oh, the new model year dropped, but some product manager had had to make decisions on trends and colors and spec, you know, six to 12 months in advance of that moment in the shop. Yeah, that, no, that's totally true. And, and, and after you do it for a few seasons, for me, at least, it, it kind of took the magic out of it because you have your friends who are like, Hey man, what do you think about uh, the new, you know, 2021 bike? And I'd be like, Ooh, you really should wait till 2023. 
Because, you know, by the time it's out, it's just like, man, I think so. That's two years old. Like I was working on that two years ago. Um, <clears throat> and so you're kind of, you're in this weird, this weird space. And like, I even had like signed a, a check to my, to my landlord with like two years ahead on the date. You know, like I wrote like, you know, this would have been back in, I wrote like 2013 and it was 2011, you know, something, something like that. Cause you really are living in this weird time space thing that's going on is, um, so that part was weird. Yeah, that, 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 uh, definitely, um, I don't, to be quite honest, I don't totally miss that part of things. Like it's exciting working on new stuff, but on the aftermarket side, like I'm doing now, um, it's nice being a little more connected with like what's happening right now, I think, at least for me. And then you had another experience with a, a medium sized bike company after Specialized. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I did Specialized. Yeah. So I was there. Um, and quite honestly, I completely burned myself out. Um, that place is really impressive with what they do. Um, it's a very fast paced environment. I mean, you're, you're just, you're just cranking. I, I gave it everything I had and I, I burned out. So I left. Um, and then I ended up at Marin bikes, um, in, in a product management role, but at Marin being a smaller company, you're doing both product development and product management. So, uh, the, the, the differentiator there is like planning what the model families are, the product families are, uh, coming up with new concepts for all new bikes. Um, and then also working on the marketing side of things like who is the customer? How do we speak to them? Working with the marketing team to come up with, you know, what imagery should we be using? How should we like, what's the copywriting process and how should that be, um, crafted for each of these families and the videos and all of that. So that was really cool. Um, and then through some unfortunate, um, kind of stroke of luck, we, uh, Ended up having to move to Seattle through basically a family illness. So um, wasn't able to travel anymore and I had to leave Marin because I was, you know, gosh, traveling 30 to 40% of the year, mainly internationally. So that was super disruptive with with what was going on up here. So we, um, Emily and I up, uprooted ourselves from California and came up here to be to be with her family. So um, that leads us to PNW. So um, I was working at Amazon totally out of my wheelhouse, but you know, they were hiring aggressively and I had some product management experience, which was somewhat relevant to what I was working on there and very quickly found that sure, like really, really cool experience, uh, just to see how a company like that does things and learned how to, you know, sell products online effectively and, and connect with customers and do, you know, product, uh, software development, uh, you know, like user testing, all of this exciting stuff. But it's not the bike industry, man. It was, it, I really missed that aspect. And I also found that I was used to being kind of thrown in the fire and being like, all right, you're going to have to be like somewhat good at a lot of different skills in a place like Amazon, at least the role I was in, you needed to be really good at one thing and like, don't get involved with other stuff. And for me that, you know, being very entrepreneurial, like that just drove me crazy. Um, I wanted the bigger scope. I wanted the more responsibility coming at me. So, um, that, that was a struggle. So Emily and I kind of were like, you know what, I, we're, we were really wanting to create something and have kind of this distraction given, you know, the, the family dynamic that was going on with, with, uh, her dad being sick and a, a distraction for me from doing stuff that I wasn't super passionate about. So we started thinking like, you know, what, what's missing in the bike industry and what, how can we help this? Like it's, you know, we have enough industry experience and also direct, you know, experience as a customer of like, well, where are we frustrated? And it's like, well, customer service is a major concern because at the time, at least a lot of brands, it was kind of like, oh, you broke it. Well, too bad. 
or like, oh, you're having an issue. Well, we can't get back to you for another week or like just no response at all. Just crazy stuff. So, you know, we knew that could be improved. Um, we also knew that pricing was way high just, you know, based on the pricing that I saw at the factory level, you know, everyone's using the same factory. So I knew what other brands were paying for stuff and I'd be like, wow. So it started at this price and now I have to pay this at the retail, you know, at the cash register. That's insane. Um, and start thinking about like, why, well, why is that? And a big part of it is, uh, just the way businesses were structured, you know, they have very high overhead costs. They have these really fancy offices, uh, or, or just high headcount, um, or they're spending a ton of money sponsoring, you know, world cup race teams, you know, millions of dollars going into that, which guess what you as a customer, you're paying for that, um, <laughs> through the sale of product. And that may not be something that everyone is interested in. Um, and the other side of it too, is just, you know, if you sell through di distributors, you have to mark up your product a lot because the distributor also needs their margin. Um, so you're kind of arbitrarily pumping up the price. Um, and a lot of this I felt didn't really benefit the customer. Like what if you don't care about tour de France? What if you don't care about the distributor that's offering the product and you just want a really cool quality product that you feel good about? Um, and then from Emily's standpoint, being, you know, marketing and branding and kind of graphic design, uh, guru, guru that she is, she was like, well, there's, there seems to be opportunity where we can create a brand that is focused around, um, you know, it has a high end look to it, but then it surprises customers in terms of the, the affordability and the reliability of the product. Um, so those were kind of all the things that came together and we, got started. You know, we were living in a hotel at the time because uh, we didn't, we didn't have a place to live up here quite yet. And, uh, I remember calling one of these factories that I used to work with, um, that I actually developed a dropper post with, with them when I was at specialized and hit him up, gave him, gave him an idea of what our idea was. And he was like, uh, no, no way I'm working with you guys. <laughs> you're way too small. Uh, you're crazy. So I just, I, I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. So I just, I kept, I kept on it for weeks. Um, just like, no, 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 like really we need to do this, man. I'm telling you, like, this is the future. We can make this happen. I know, I know we're small, but just trust me on this one. So finally he came around, gave us a chance, which, uh, really changed everything. So that, that was our first opportunity to, to start developing product with them and selling it. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that was a pretty pivotal moment and it's also what I've had to do continuously is just being really tenacious and, um, staying on things <laughs> and it, uh, it ended up working out in the, in the long run. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting journey for sure. Amazing. Was that yeah. first product launch? Did you launch basically with a single mountain bike dropper post? Single mountain bike dropper post. And, and nowadays, like there's no way it would even sell. Like it was just way off the back. Um, you know, things have changed very rapidly since then, but yeah, we came in with one product, one diameter, one travel. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what we needed to get our start. And then we got really aggressive or I got really aggressive at the time with just trying to develop and push, um, with, with other product offerings. Um, but yeah, I mean, droppers were our, our staple for the first like three years that we were that we were uh, getting going. I feel like it was a category as a mountain biker that the kind of your Rock Shocks and your other brands. It was super expensive to get that product, but it was becoming very clear from riders in forums that 
having a dropper post was game changing for bike performance. So I, I can imagine there was a lot of people looking at the product and then asking themselves, who is PNW components and can I trust them? Yeah. And that was the, that was the number one thing that we knew we had to like, once we got started, uh, I was like, all right, well, we have to gain trust and we have to do it very quickly. So like what's important to customers. So we started thinking about it. It's like, well, us touting how awesome we are is basically as, as good as, as basically useless, right? Like that shouldn't have any weight. Um, so we need to get validation. So I was like, okay, well we need to leverage customer reviews, totally unbiased, just you know, random customer coming in, buying a product, we need to really encourage them to give us a review and they have to be honest about it. Like we can't do this weird slimy stuff where it's like, Hey, we'll give you a $30 gift card. If you leave us a review, you know, like that's, you're leading the witness, you know, that's not fair. Um, so it was like, you know, how do we encourage people to leave reviews? That was a big one. Uh, we then need to leverage these reviews in terms of getting them out there in front of other people. So they understand like, Oh, okay. Well, this person had a good experience, and oh, wow, wow. There's hundreds of people had a good experience. Interesting. I've never heard of these guys, but seems like other people are interested. But still, there's that other piece of trust you need to uh, to to instill. So then it was like, well, we need to get you know, the big media outlets obviously are very important for that. So um, you know, I had connections through my days at Marin and Specialized with different editors at you know Pink Bike or Single Tracks, Vital, all these different. Um, publications. So we got long-term reviews through them. And then kind of tying it all together is like, well, where are people looking for product? Um, and where are they trying to educate themselves and learn? And it's like, okay, well, social media obviously has a big, a big piece of this and it's growing. Um, you know, think back four or five years ago, like that, that still was relatively untapped in the bike industry. Uh, people are looking on YouTube and they're looking on Google. So we need to be in all of those places and we need to be there in a really helpful way. We can't just be loud and proud. It's got to be very helpful and, and tasteful in, in how we're doing it. And that's the, you know, that, that was all Emily on making that happen. So, um, that's how we looked at it. Um, the tr more traditional way of doing things, at least at that time was having your shops, um, get the word out there, um, which we then transitioned to at a later point. So we have a very strong IBD, IBD network, which is awesome to see grow. Um, but at the time it was, yeah, again, we wanted to be in front of customers where they're searching for product, um, as opposed to, you know, paying for like print ads and magazines or again, sponsoring race teams. Cause to me, that's very biased. Like having a pro rider say how awesome they think the stuff that they're being paid to ride is, um, I think customers are much smarter than that. And they know that that's, you know, it's a biased opinion. Um, but that was the model at the time. <laughs> it's fun talking to you as someone who came across PNW for a mountain bike post probably six, seven years ago, I want to say at this point, and gone through that same journey from the other side, which was kind of, okay, being a little bit incredulous that you could have a solid product at the price point that you offer it at, then digging into the reviews and saying, well, what the heck, I'm going to give it a try, and then being blown away by the product and the experience. And I, I've still got that original post on one of my mountain bikes cranking today. Um, so it's cool that you shared the Amazon part of the equation. Cause I think it, it really rounded out how you thought about the company having the bike industry experience, but then also that Amazon experience and how, you know, you've got to be right out there with the customer online and the, the product's got to be solid and the experience on the site has to be solid. 
Yeah, no, and all that. And you know, speaking about Amazon, you know, what was really interesting is you know we launched on Amazon um, right off the bat. You know, I, I knew again there was a huge bias at the time against Amazon from the bike industry. I was like, oh, that's crap. It's like Walmart. And I was like, okay, fair enough. But guess what? Like, I I've seen the data. <laughs> There's a lot of people on there. Uh, so you can say what you want about it. Like I'm going to view this as like a blue ocean opportunity. It's like you can hate on it, but again, that's where people are doing a lot of their shopping and whatever your views on Amazon and their, their impact on society. Uh, you know, that, that again is where people are, are doing a lot of things. And so they're, they're buying maybe, uh, a cell phone charger and a dropper post, <laughs> you know, it's like kind of this weird mix of stuff. It's your one-stop shop. So we need to be on there and we need to merchandise properly. We need to play the game with how Amazon wants it played. Um, and sure enough, what we would see was since we were new, gosh, about 70% of our sales at, uh, in the beginning were on Amazon, 30% between you know, our website and, and other retail outlets. And what was going on is I think people didn't trust us yet. So they would go on Amazon because they knew that if the product sucked, Amazon would give them a full refund. And if they bought from our website, like maybe that wasn't true, you know? Right. Uh, and since then, now that we've we've built trust and we were and we're more established now, complete opposite is happening. You know, Amazon's a, a, a relatively small piece of our total sales channel these days, um, and it's it's primarily through our website, which is a beautiful thing. You know, we, we want direct contact with our customers, and that's the best way of doing it because then we can um, interact with them. You know, like if we have a new product announcement, we can email people or um, if they have an issue, they can contact us directly. I mean, that's the best way as opposed to going through, you know, customer service on Amazon or, or a retailer. So anyway, it's just, a, it's been an interesting shift kind of seeing how that has changed and it all comes down to trust and gaining um, reputability through other people telling other people how good we are. Yeah. Um, well, we can continue to geek out on the e-commerce side of things because you know it's a passion point of mine as well but i want to get into the gravel product line that you have and talk to me about sort of when you started to see the trend of gravel when you started riding it yourself and coming from a mountain bike background what what holes were you seeing in the market that created opportunity for you guys yeah you know it was uh it, it really came from uh Internally, I mean, our, our team, um, we have some really, really, really avid gravel riders uh, on the team. And um, I love them because they are, to me at least, a kind of, um, what would it be equivalent to in the car world? But anyway, it's, it, you know, it really is, it's a, it's a burly road bike with mountain bike as, uh, inspiration in terms of a little bit more lax geo, tad slacker, uh, head tube angle more of a relaxed fit. And for me having a, you know, I've broken my back before. So I have a bad back, like being on a, like on, being on a tarmac, for instance, for me is really uncomfortable. Um, and then also having the ability to have, you know, the larger tires that absorb bumps more. I mean, even cruising around town, I just prefer it. I, I love them. So yeah, anyway, it started internally. Um, obviously the market, uh, for gravel has grown tremendously. Um, we don't sell bikes, so that doesn't directly impact us, but just the fact that people are fixing up Either they're buying a, a dedicated gravel bike or they're buying, you know, some other type of bike and kind of building it out to be more gravel inspired. That was sort of what started to happen. And we finally got a toe in the water. Um, you know, our, our, our first, you know, technically gravel focused product would be that we have a line of 27.2 diameter uh, dropper seat posts. And we, we, we brought those in very early on. Um, 
And it's a mix of, you know, folks on like, let's say a steel hardtail mountain bike or people starting to outfit their uh, 700C bike. Um, and so we started to see this evolution and, and what was cool is customers would send us photos of what they were doing. And I was like, huh, okay. So you have like a, a, a road bike. Um, you were able to squeeze a little bit fatter tire in there. Very cool. Um, and now you want to drop her post on it. Um, cause maybe you're doing like a local cyclocross series. That's kind of how it started for us was kind of, uh, you know, like the, what would it be like, you know, like the golden gate park series that was going on. We had a lot of folks doing that. And so we had externally routed, cable routed dropper posts in 27.2. And that's really what started to lead us into the gravel world. And then we came out with a dropper remote that could fit on a drop bar. Um, the first rendition that we had mounted right next to the stem. And now we have one that actually mounts in the, in the drops themselves. Okay. And are you, are you accessing that? I had, a, I had a listener ask me about this the other day about external gravel dropper posts and they weren't they were running a two by drivetrain so they weren't going to be able to integrate it with their left shift lever how, how are you accessing it are you in the drops and then kind of reaching your thumb up to hit that lever yeah so um yeah so our drop bar lever is if you're down in the drops um you can access it with your thumb um you can access it we, we've had some people do some interesting stuff where they actually flip it upside down and they actually mount it on the outside of the bar. And then that way you can tap it with your fingers, whether you're on in your hoods or down in the drops. Um, so that was cool. And that was something I, you know, I hadn't even considered, but that was, again, uh, customer feedback kind of led us in a, in a much better direction. Yeah, it's interesting. And, it, and it, you know, a lot of my listeners, I imagine at this point, are dropper curious because I talk about dropper posts all the time and how much I love them for, for gravel riding. The cool thing, and I experienced this on my mountain bike with your product, in running an external uh, routed dropper post, it's quite easy to swap out. So if you're one of those listeners who's kind of on the fence or maybe you don't have internal routing capabilities, don't hesitate to try something with an external routing because it, it can be pretty cleanly mounted the in terms of the cable to your top tube and you can test it out and if you're going on a road tour or something where you don't feel like you need it it's really easy to pop it off and swap your original back on that's exactly what i do that's funny you bring that up yeah because there's times where i'm like all right i'm just going to go on like a road ride um there's no point in having a dropper because i'm not doing much elevation gain so i'll take it off because it's just you know it's added weight and what's the point um and what i do is actually so um BMX brands like freestyle BMX bikes, they have these really cool Velcro straps um, and they're soft on one side, that side that goes on the frame so it doesn't scratch the paint. And then they're made to just grab your cables because a lot of BMX bikes, you know, most people run brakeless. Um, but if you, if you do want to run brakes, um, there's usually not cable mounts for them. So these straps are really cool. So I, I ordered them through uh, Dan's Comp. You know, Dan's Competition is a big online retailer for BMX parts. Um, and so I use those and you know, that, that holds the cable onto the frame. And then when I want to take it off, I just unstrap them and pull the cable off. It's super easy. Interesting. No zip ties or anything you have to deal with. Yeah. I like that. Cause I've always done the zip tie thing and, and that would really save me a step. Yeah. And also, you know, the zip ties as things rattle and you get some grit in there, like they can really scratch your paint, which I don't know, not everyone cares about that, but when it comes time for resell, you know, I've you have someone pointing at it being like, well, I don't know, man, this thing's pretty beat up. <laughs> so it's just one less thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think my first gravel bike, I just absolutely destroyed because I didn't put any thought into how hard everything was going to bang around when I was riding it the way I did. 
Oh my God. I mean, you know, like riding up on, uh, like on Tam on the, some of those fire roads, I mean, it's just a rattle fest. So yeah, the bike gets really, uh, really rattled up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Early on in the conversation, we were kind of talking about gravel drawing from lots of different sides of the sport. And you certainly have a lot of road athletes who are familiar with drop bar riding coming over to gravel and typically mimicking, mimicking their same cockpit setup. So, you know, an average male might choose a 44 centimeter bar. You came out with the coast handlebar and you've kind of blown that out. Your minimum size is the 48 centimeter and then you've got a 520, um, 52 centimeter as well. Can you talk about the design of the coast bar and why you think wider bars have a place in gravel? Yeah. So here, yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. So yeah, you know, after droppers, we transitioned. So the bar is the, the, the first like dedicated product, um, that we did for, for, for gravel. So cool thing about the coast is what we did is we went with a shallower drop, shallower reach, um, and then, and then widen the bar. So coming from the mountain bike side of things, it was always, how do I describe it? I mean, getting on, like I would run like a 42 or a 44 bar. And when I was out of the saddle pedaling, like it just felt more twitchy. Um, and for me, I was like, okay, well, I guess that's just how a drop bar is, whatever. But the more we got to thinking about it, um, you know, on a mountain bike, we're running like seven, 780 millimeters, even 800, 810. Um, like if you're riding, well, I don't know, some people prefer the larger bar, but you know, if you're riding downhill or something, um, you have a much wider bar. And the biggest benefit is stability because when you have your, you know, if you're thinking about like, if you're looking down on the stem from the top view and kind of turning your bars that it's a much larger circumference. Um, and therefore when you're, when your hands are really wide, uh, it takes more movement to have the wheel pivot down the center line, if that makes sense. So like if you're really, really close to the stem, like on a fixie, the bars are going to be really twitchy, but the wider you are, it's more stable. So that's the biggest benefit for gravel. And now that we're taking these things off, off road, you want more stability because that front end, once it starts to chatter around, I mean, that's in my opinion, at least it's pretty sketchy. It can be scary. Um, cause if you hit a bump weird and your body weight's a little bit off and you can't correct it, or if you overcorrect, like you're going to go over the bars, um, whether you're on a, a fire road or a single track or whatever you're riding. So that was the opinion we came from as well. You know, let's take a little inspiration from the mountain bike side, make these bars wider. But to do that, you don't want a super, you know, deep drop um, or a ton of reach on the bar itself. So you kind of want to, you want to make that a little bit more neutral. Um, and then with that, to keep your reach numbers in in line. So if you imagine if you take your arms and you go wider, you're going to be leaning in more. So you're actually effectively becoming more stretched out. And so you want to counteract that by reducing your stem length. So our, our general rule of thumb, and of course, you know, this is very much, you know, torso and wingspan dependent, but our general rule of thumb is for every 20 millimeters wider that you go with your bar width, you're going to want to shorten your stem by 10 millimeters. So that's kind of our, our rough kind of napkin calculation. So, um, yeah. So anyway, when, when you're going up to, a, you know, a 48 or a, even a 52, that's, that's definitely something to keep in mind just so you're not getting way too stretched out. It's great getting the mountain bike influence more into gravel, I think, and we're seeing it more and more. I certainly recall my first exposure to a wider bar was generally from more from the bike packing side of the world where, mm-hmm. you know, having 
additional bar space gave you, as you said, additional stability and it gave you more room to pack stuff on your handlebar. But as I've ridden the Coast Bar and I'm riding the 480 millimeter version, all the things that you've said have rung true. I really feel like I can pull the wheel over obstacles better when I'm on the hoods being out wider. And I definitely get that feeling that I have on the mountain bike in terms of my ability to throw things around. And then combining it with the shallower drop, it gave me a little bit more confidence making that movement from the top to the bottom of the bar in chunkier situations, which was super comforting. And that the combination of the two with the dropper post, I feel like I can sit very well in the pocket with the width and the shallowness of the coast bar that makes it super confidence inspiring. Totally, man. I mean, I'm thinking of a situation now, there's this loop that we do just a road loop, um, from the house and, it's a section where you're bombing down a hill. I mean, you're, you're cruising. I mean, you're 35, 40 miles an hour coming down and it has this big swooping left-hand corner that then nose goes back uphill and there's some chatter in that corner. And so when I'm trying to transition from being in the drops up back up to the hoods and turning, it's terrifying when there's a really long, uh, when, when I have like a more traditional road bar, but with these bars, um, being more shallow, like I, I can, it's just a, such a quick little transition with my hand and it's way less of a scary, uh, high drama event <laughs> for me at least. So, um, yeah, no, I mean that, that really was it. And the, the other part too, is we added quite a bit of flair to the bar as well. Um, and that, that also helps with just kind of general comfort when you're cruising, but also, um, that hand transition up back up to the hoods, um, in, in a little bit more intense situations, it really does help. Yeah. And I have to say like for me, you know, and many of the listeners may have seen bikes like this. When you have flair, you start to see the brake hoods kind of point inwards and upwards. And I always sort of had a, I don't really like that. And I will say like the 20 degree degree flare is kind of the most I think I would want to see just aesthetically. I still have that little bit of roadie in me that, that has a vision of how the handlebar should look. No, I, I totally agree, man. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more of a purist in that standpoint too. Like, you know, road bikes are beautiful, uh, when they're well executed and you don't want to deviate too far from that. I have seen though, some brands have made, you know, a dedicated clamp that, well, actually a, a dedicated, um, you know, brifter really, uh, that actually has some ca- some angle to it so that it actually will counteract what you're talking about. But with our bar, we don't need that. Um, that's when you're really getting like that really extreme, you know, like, a um, like the cow chipper bar, for instance, like it has quite a bit more flair. Um, and that's where that starts to really come into play. It's quite interesting. I've been thinking more about how I'm configuring my bike as personalization. I was previously using the word upgrades and I actually think it's a misnomer because I think a lot about what you're doing with your gravel bike is just making it right for the terrain you ride the most. And I fully acknowledge like where my setup has gone. It has definitely gone more towards the aggressive off-road setup and much farther away from the kissing cousin of a road bike that I started out with when I began my gravel riding journey. No, you're, you're spot on, man. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Same, same upgrade. I mean, I think that's just something we've all, you know, like you buy something new, you assume it's because it's going to be quote unquote better, but like, yeah, it's just different. <laughs> it's just, you're just getting, you're just, yeah, you're re like kind of recalibrating your bike for what you're using it for now. And with gravel happening so fast, um, th- there's a lot of that, man. I mean, it's kind of like, 
this perpetual journey of like, okay, well now what about tires? Okay, well how about handlebars? Okay, well what about my saddle? You know, like there's all these things that are adapting really fast. Yeah. Um, so kind of this, yeah, it's almost like a whack-a-mole type of game <laughs> where you're like, um, yeah, trying to, trying to keep up with the trend and the, and the, the newest stuff here. Yeah. It's actually pretty easy to go nuts. If you sign up for an event in a different part of a country to kind of agonize if your home bike setup, particularly tires are appropriate for wherever you're heading. Uh, I, I agree hundred percent. I'm, I'm constantly, um, constantly struggling with what tire is optimal for what I'm doing. Um, and there's not a ton of, I mean, there's a lot of options, but there's, there really aren't actually in, in comparison to like, I don't know, with road or mountain bike. Um, there's a lot of little iterations between and I'm in terms of, ca- of casing, tread design, um, weights as well. But yeah, with gravel, that's, that's pretty quickly moving. And also just with frame compatibility, like you, not all frames can ride a super wide tire, for instance, um, which is kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, I definitely see that as a trend and something we're tracking on the podcast for sure is just the frame designs accommodating wider tires because I think it does end up ultimately giving you a super wide range for that bike. So, you know, put some 30 slicks on it and it can be a great road touring machine and then go out to like, you know, a 700 by 47 and you've got this wicked off-road setup. No, totally, man. Yeah. And you know, the the obvious, uh, challenge there is, you know, maintaining Q factor and all these things, but yeah, I mean the, the, the engineers that are working on the frames are getting really good at it. The other one that I'm sure you're tracking is internal cable routing capability for dropper posts. Um, that's a very mixed bag, um, which also, you know, kind of forces a lot of folks into an externally routed dropper if that's the direction they're going, but we're seeing more and more adoption. It's just more like if you're buying a used bike, um, I mean, there's a whole generation that just don't have internal routing, Yeah. Uh, which again, not the end of the world, but it's, it's something a lot of people want. Yeah. It becomes nice and slick when you've got everything inside. Although I don't relish the, uh, slotting the cable through the frame exercise, which some, sometimes can be very challenging. Sometimes it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, some are some, you know, uh, I guess it's frame specific, but man, I've had some that have like literally taken an hour just to get the cable through. And it's just like, Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> but some are getting good. Like, uh, yeah, some brands have like a dedicated tube that actually channels it all the way up. And that's awesome. That is yeah. such a thing. Yep, exactly. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for the conversation. It was great to get the history of you as a rider and of PNW. It's been a lot of fun getting to know you and, and testing some of these products, which I'm, I'm enjoying a lot. No, absolutely, man. No, I really appreciate you uh, having me on. And um, yeah, if, if anyone has questions, just you know, reach out. I mean, that's what we have a very solid team here and uh, we love chatting with folks. So um, yeah, feel free to, to reach out if you have any questions. Right on. Thanks, Aaron. Awesome. Thank you. Big thanks to Aaron for sharing his story with us on the Gravel Ride podcast this week. And big thanks to our sponsor, Athletic Greens. We can't continue to do what we do without these sponsors and the sponsorship that you guys have provided via buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. It's been awesome hearing from so many of you. And if you're interested in giving us a shout out, ratings and reviews are critically important. So we super appreciate that. And I read everything you put out there.
Speaking of feedback, I also wanted to highlight that we've created a new Facebook forum. So if you search for the Gravel Ride podcast, you'll see a group you can join where listeners are discussing some of the things we're talking about on these episodes, as well as the In the Dirt episode. So I welcome you to join that group and look forward to hearing from you there. So that's it for this week. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.